Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome everyone to Kidney Talk. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Ravi Tadani. He is a nephrologist and he's the vice dean for research and graduate education at Cedar Sinai Medical Center. And he's very interested and going to teach me about Fabry disease. So um, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Dr. Tadani, for joining us. Laurie, good morning. Thank you for having me. So, you know, t- I gave a little bit of background, but do you think there's anything else you need to add? I mean, you, you've traveled all over and, you know, worked different places. Uh, no, I'm a nephrologist by training and uh, very much interested in clinical and translational research and, uh, of course, very dedicated to bringing new therapies for patients with kidney disease to the clinic. So, you know, tell me, what is Fabry disease? So Fabry disease is a a rare condition. It's a genetic condition uh, because it is transmitted uh, via the X chromosome. It then tends to affect males more than it does females, but that's not to say that females are not affected. The reason why doctors with uh, a specialty in nephrology are interested in this particular disease is because as a result of this uh, genetic condition, uh, there's a buildup of various uh, fatty molecules uh, in the patient's blood, and there mm-hmm. is an accumulation of those uh, molecules in various tissue beds like the kidney, the heart, um, and the skin. And a major consequence of the condition is uh, kidney disease, uh, as well as, importantly, kidney failure. Uh, and we're very interested in understanding how that happens, the frequency of that occurrence, and, of course, how to prevent it. So what, what's really happening is the fatty tissue just accumulates in the kidney, and it basically clogs the kidney so it can't produce urine. Is that a, that's the layman term way of thinking how this visually happens? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. There's an accumulation of these uh, fatty molecules in the kidney, and as a result, the native kidney cells uh, begin to get destroyed. They can't then perform their function. Uh, Subsequently, the kidneys get fibrotic and begin to shrink. And as a result of that, uh, kidney function begins to deteriorate. And then, of course, the kidneys can't do what they're supposed to do. And it then necessitates dialysis in order for people to stay alive. Well, what's what's really interesting is that you said... um they actually shrink. And I initially thought, well, when you have more fat around the kidney, it's going to get big, like polycystic kidney disease. So it's actually the opposite. It actually just makes, basically makes the kidney deteriorate and no longer function. Yeah, so that's the end result. And of course, there's a natural history to this. And clearly up front, there is an accumulation and slightly larger kidneys. But over time, as the cells themselves get destroyed, uh, you know, as, as cells really in the body get destroyed, um, they uh, one mechanism of their destruction is that uh, fibrotic uh, tissue begins to develop, and the cells essentially uh, become either di- they either disappear or they, they they get damaged. 
So the end result, of course, is small shrunken kidneys, and that's what you find with patients on dialysis uh, from any etiology for the most part, of course, except, like you said, polycystic kidney disease. So there's a natural history to this condition, but clearly up front and, and, and when the damage is in full force, uh, the kidneys have an accumulation of fat. Now, if you have Fabry disease and you get a kidney transplant, uh, does the Fabry disease attack the new kidney? So when you get a kidney transplant, uh, the kidneys, of course, uh, uh, do fine. Uh, there is a mild amount of accumulation uh, after the transplant, but usually the kidneys do fine. The challenge, of course, in Fabry disease is that there is an accumulation of this fat in other organs, and in blood vessels, in the heart, in blood vessels, of course, in the brain, in the skin, uh, in the GI tract. And as a result, the complications of those, uh, of that accumulation of those tissue beds is what leads to significant morbidity and potentially mortality in this population, even though, for example, the kidneys might still be working with the transplant. And when I think about fatty tissue, I think about cholesterol, but it's not the same thing. It's a different fat? Yeah, it's a different type of fat. Um, there's an enzyme defect, uh, and like typical enzyme defects, uh, everything before the defect begins to accumulate and everything downstream from the defect um, does not uh, uh, exist, and it's that accumulation. And as you know, the body, of course, metabolizes many different kinds of Fat, fat molecules, this is, of course, one of them, a specialized uh, form, uh, uh, not exactly, but it is remotely related to cholesterol, as you suggest. So Fabry disease is, is a genetic illness. You pass it down for certain, like, or does it skip generations, or how does that work? How, how do you know if you're at risk of passing on Fabry disease? So the condition is uh, transmitted by the X chromosome. Of course, males have uh, one X chromosome, females have two. So um, a mother, for example, with two X chromosomes and one of them affected may co be completely asymptomatic. And her children um, have the chance of um, receiving the X chromosome at the frequency of distribution. So, for example, if she has a son, the son would inherit one or the other X chromosome. If the son inherits the one that is affected, then uh, he has 100% chance of getting the disease and the complications. And unfortunately, for example, in that population, the uh, average age of getting on dialysis is in the 40s. Um, the females, uh, as you know, have two X chromosomes. So, if we go back to that same mother with two X chromosomes, um, her daughter will uh, receive one. The other X chromosome, of course, will come from the father. And if her daughter receives the affected X chromosome, she may be affected, although not as severe as males. It is under-recognized in women just because the symptoms and signs and complications tend to be a little bit later. But again, it doesn't mean that uh, the disease should be underestimated in women. So it's a general pattern of inheritance called X-linked uh, inheritance uh, based on the distribution of X chromosomes. Uh, and um, again, as I said, even the mother may be completely asymptomatic because she has one good X chromosome and one affected. Her sons, if they inherit the affected one, and her daughters, if they inherit one of the X's that's affected, uh, they would have 
signs and symptoms and the complications. So, you know, it's it's always interesting to me because I hear a lot about polycystic kidney disease, but you don't hear a lot about some of the other genetic illnesses. And um, how many people are impacted by Fabry disease? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Lori. Um, and it's one of the reasons we're very interested in doing this study. Because it is ex linked, um, it tends to be much less common than other diseases like polycystic, of course, whose frequency is much higher. It is not, ex- polycystic kidney disease is not X-linked, of course. Um, and the challenge, of course, is understanding how common this is, just exactly as you ask. Uh, one way to go about this is to screen patients, but given the distribution and what we know about the frequency, that tends to be um, uh, not a very efficient way to identify patients affected. So what we tend to do is uh, wait for the classic features of the disease, again, which include, for example, some skin manifestations, kidney manifestations, uh, uh, there's some features of the eye. Uh, and in those patients, we, at least clinically, would screen for this particular condition. Otherwise, we would not have a reason to screen. Now, of course, another reason to screen is if we believe that the disease is affecting a parent, just as I said, Mm -hmm. if a mother might have some mild symptoms of the condition. So we tend to focus our screening methods on those that have features of the condition, which are somewhat classic. And that's why patients with kidney disease, especially in those where we don't have an understanding of why they develop kidney disease, why are they on dialysis, and especially those, and and, excuse me, in addition, if they have a family history of it, it then raises the possibility that they might be affected by this condition. And it's in those individuals that screening has a much higher chance of yielding the diagnosis. Dr. Tadani, is there a possibility that people have Fabry disease and they're on dialysis and they don't know it? That's exactly right, Laurie. Um, our suspicion is uh, that's, uh, that does exist. As you know, when we look at the causes of why people have kidney failure and on dialysis, uh, they tend to be in the category of diabetes and high blood pressure. Um, as you know, not everybody who goes on dialysis has had a kidney biopsy. Mm-hmm. And so there are quite a few people on dialysis where we think we know what's going on, but uh, in fact, they may be affected that, by this condition. Now, of course, we would look for specific features to, feel, to believe that they are at higher risk of having the condition. And it primarily uh, relates to, of course, family history, but also the age of when somebody develops kidney failure. These rare genetic conditions like fibroid disease tend to lead to kidney failure in males, especially at a young age, for example, in the 40s and 50s, whereas, uh, or even sometimes earlier, whereas the more classic conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure, the average age of starting dialysis would be in the 60s. And so when you see somebody with a young age, uh, at a young age who starts on dialysis without a known cause of having kidney failure, it's in that population that uh, one should suspect some rare con- genetic conditions, one of which, of course, includes Fabry disease. So can you diagnose Fabry disease with a blood test? Yes. Um, there are a variety of blood tests um, that we use. Uh, typically, um, we use inexpensive tests up front, and then we would, for example, use a, a more specific and expensive test later. Uh, the classic way, of course, to diagnose the condition is just doing a genetic test. 
But there are uh, tests that one can do to look in the blood, uh, just as you suggest, of the accumulation of these kinds of fats. And you can look at levels that people do. You can take uh, white blood cells uh, from patients and measure the accumulation of these kinds of fats. You can actually also look at the enzyme activity specifically of uh, the defective enzyme. And if it is below a certain level, have a high suspicion of the of the disease. Ultimately, the gold standard, of course, is to identify the genetic defect, uh, of course, in the gene and the X uh, uh, chromosome that's uh, uh, responsible for the condition. And that's the gold standard of the diagnosis. So, uh, Dr. Tadani, tell us a little bit about, you know, the treatments available now, other than obviously dialysis is a treatment. But... Um, maybe some of the different uh, medication options, if there are any, and uh, about the study that you're working on to learn more about this illness. We're at a very exciting time in medicine where historically, if somebody had a genetic defect, um, there, was not, there was not much to offer other than supportive care. Uh, given the uh, revolution, I would say, of uh, therapies that bypass the genetic defect, uh, therapies um, uh, that uh, overcome uh, the genetic defect uh, that we in a variety of diseases today can enjoy. Uh, we've been able to bring therapies to the clinic that affect, excuse me, that uh, help individuals with, again, these rare genetic defects. So, for example, if the genetic defect sits in an enzyme, and in this case it does, the enzyme is defective. As a result, there's an accumulation of fatty molecules before the enzyme works, and so the enzyme is defective, the fatty molecules build up. Well, in today's uh, medicine, you can give back the enzyme and allow the body to metabolize that accumulation of fat and, and uh, continue in its, metab in its metabolism so it does not build up. And that's the kind of therapies that are available today. They're called enzyme replacement therapies. Uh, they're available uh, worldwide. And what they do is they reduce the burden of the accumulation of the fat. Uh, typically, the fat is called a glycolipid. And uh, that's what these specific therapies do. And there are specific enzyme therapies, as I mentioned, available. Now, one might argue that um, if somebody has kidney failure and the kidneys have already failed, would they benefit from these kinds of enzyme replacement therapies? And the answer is probably yes, because remember, there's an accumulation of these fats, these glycolipids in other tissues, the brain, vessels, and heart, and so forth. And it's possible that treating these individuals, even after we believe there's kidney failure, uh, may have some benefit. So then you asked about the study we're doing, which we're, of course, very excited about. And it gets back to a study I did many years ago uh, in the early 2000s, where we looked at, on dialysis, which patients which have no diagnosis and are young uh, have Fabry disease. And we went after those patients uh, that, or we tried to identify those patients that had the known diagnosis of Fabry disease. Now, of course, at that time, it wasn't really well known. Physicians weren't recognizing it as they are today. And at that time, we uh, established that the frequency of the condition 
was uncommon, one in 50,000, for example, or one in 40,000. Males and females affected. Females on dialysis, again, without a diagnosis, also potentially can have this condition. Well, now, fast forward, Lori, uh, almost a decade and a half, and ask the question, what is the frequency of the condition today on dialysis? And that's what our study is addressing. We are looking at, again, uh, individuals without a known diagnosis, young, potentially with family history, and asking, what's the frequency of this condition? It gets back to a point you made earlier, and that is, are we not recognizing individuals with this condition, and our suspicion and our hypothesis is, in fact, we are not recognizing this condition. And, of course, other studies, not our study, are addressing the question of whether or not those individuals should be treated to help with, for example, the risk of stroke that they might have in reducing that, or risk of heart failure that they might have in reducing that. Our study is simply saying we still believe we under-recognize the condition on dialysis, given that dialysis, as you and I both know, is such a devastating, uh, life-changing complication. And if we have a better understanding of this disease and can identify it, can we help these individuals? Can we increase the awareness so that maybe these individuals could have been treated earlier uh, and prevented them from going on dialysis? Or even after dialysis, can we prevent them from suffering some of the complications, like I said, of stroke and heart failure? And that's the study that we're doing. Well, and then also, too, with Fabry disease, you could be on dialysis and have the illness, but on the transplant list. So it would be important to know if you're able to reduce the enzyme level for your other body parts to be able to maintain a healthy kidney. I mean, if you don't have good blood vessels that aren't, you know, per, uh, perfusing well, then you, um, you know, it can it can impact your transplant. So um, that's very, very interesting. Are there any risks from, you know, taking enzymes? So let me just first uh, comment on the excellent point that you made, which is that somebody gets a transplant with this condition, and as you said, they need healthy other organs to complement that kidney. And it's possible that treatment in those individuals, even though the kidney defect, if you will, was corrected, may still benefit. Um, And it is an excellent point uh, and one we certainly cannot forget uh, because, as you know, you know, everything has to act in concert and and complement each other. And it's easy enough, and I shouldn't dismiss how easy it is. It is not easy at all. But it is one thing to correct the kidney defect, but, but if you ignore everything else, we may not be helping our patients as right. well. well. Well, normally people with kidney disease don't die of kidney disease. They die of cardiovascular disease. That's right. And, and again, because of the accumulation <laughs> in the heart and blood vessels, um, these kinds of treatments that are available address that specifically. Now, are there any um, risks of taking enzymes or benefits? I know sometimes when I've had to take IVIG, one of the benefit is is it helps me not get you know sick. It kind of gives me a overall uh, coat coating of a lot of antibodies from people. So, uh, are there any risks or benefits from taking enzyme therapy? Uh, yes. So, you know, the benefit, of course, is that it reduces the risk mm-hmm. of the complications. So I think that's fair to say, and I think it's easy enough to understand that. Like all therapies uh, we have uh, in, in medicine, there's always a potential for side effects. Um, if you just think about it uh, conceptually, your body 
an individual with this condition has never actually seen the enzyme, uh, if they have uh, no enzyme available, they have one X chromosome like a male, their body has never actually made the enzyme. And the reason I mention that is because when we then identify that individual and decide to give the enzyme back, as you can imagine, the body sees that enzyme as a foreign substance mm-hmm. because the body's not used to seeing it. So some of the side effects may be that and as a result of seeing that enzyme as a foreign substance, um, uh, the body may have a, an autoimmune or not autoimmune, have an immune reaction against that over time. And so we are obviously very careful about that and watch that very carefully. It's not frequent. And even if there's a mild amount, it doesn't seem to affect uh, the benefit or at least outweigh the benefit. Can't you just give a little Benadryl with it? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, people, absolutely. So they give uh, things that that reduce the immune uh, response, uh, Mm -hmm. some Benadryl, some steroids, and so forth. And, you know, people over time get used to it. um, And that's also, uh, but but again, some people don't. And again, we have to watch out for that. Well, Well, I didn't know, I don't know if you know this, but steroids is the secret to youth. I didn't. I didn't know if you knew that. It just takes all the wrinkles right out. So there are oh. some benefits of steroids. <laughs> well, yes. I, I, maybe that's part of a different discussion. I wouldn't certainly advocate <laughs> know, it as a as a therapy for the for you. Well, exactly. I've been taking them for years. I have to figure out some positive reason for taking them. <laughs> this uh, it does help me keep my transplant. So I'm very grateful. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about the study and how people can learn about if they want to get involved. Yes, so thank you for asking. Uh, What we're doing um, is, in collaboration with a large dialysis provider, advertising uh, to have patients volunteer to participate. And what does that mean? It means that um, we would, uh, free of charge, uh, take a small sample of their blood and screen them for this condition. Now, of course, we would be focusing on those individuals that otherwise don't have a diagnosis, as I said, And for this first part of the study, we're going to focus on males because the diagnosis is a little bit easier. Uh, And of course, later on, we'll come back and and do the similar or related study in females. And so patients on dialysis, who are the population we're focusing on first, uh, males, young males, in this case, um, since as I get older, of course, that changes, but young in this (laughs) case would be below 50 or so, uh, they would be asked to volunteer and participate. And again, what would that mean? We have a web-based format where we would, uh, where they would log on on their own uh, decision and communicate with us that they're interested. Uh, of course, they would then sign a consent form, and we would then send them a kit uh, with uh, some tubes of blood, and they would take that to their dialysis unit on the next time they get blood drawn and. Uh, have uh, accompanying that kit would be a small uh, instruction sheet, which would just say fill up the tubes. Uh, the amount is is small, relatively speaking. They would then pack up the kit and literally put it in the mailbox, um, and then that would come back to us. We would use that to screen for the condition, and if the screening test, in this case it's called a blood spot test, if that were positive, we would then test the genetic defect which is, again, as I mentioned, the gold standard. We're, again, targeting those individuals without a known diagnosis because, of course, one, people want to know about their diagnosis. Two, potentially it has effects on whether or not um, their clinician, uh, if knowing 
they had a condition might manage them a little bit differently. And of course, three, it has implications for their offspring and of course their family. So uh, we believe that uh, this is the first step of identifying those individuals that might benefit from therapy. We're not administering therapy as part of this study. We're simply screening those individuals without a known diagnosis. And we're doing it around the country across many different sites. Uh, we'll be advertising uh, with the help of these dialysis providers um, uh, in a variety of different ways. We have a website that will come up um, and inform individuals about the study, of course, and on a voluntary basis ask them to participate. Everything will be kept confidential. The website is public, but once you get in and consent, that's all private and secure. Um, so we've been very careful about maintaining uh, privacy, as you can imagine. Um, but in this day and age, with the ability to access uh, information and consent forms via the Internet uh, and shipping and blood samples, we believe we can screen a large group of individuals. And our target, of course, is 10,000 uh, individuals uh, here to better understand, are we missing the diagnosis, which is a key question you asked earlier. Well, and what are some of um, some of the diagnosis names that people are given when you don't actually know what's happened to them? Is it like... Uh, that's an interesting question, uh, Lori. When clinicians don't know what the cause is, we then tend to describe the kidney disease by its pathology. So, okay. for example, we might say somebody has FSGS. Well, okay. FSGS stands for focal glomerular uh, sclerosis. And um, that is a pathologic term. It doesn't tell us why they actually developed it. Okay. So they could have Fabry disease. That's right. Okay. In the same way, if they have hypertension, they have hypertensive um, nephrosclerosis. Again, okay. these are pathologic terms, but they could have Fabry disease. Now, I uh, my diagnosis was hemolytic uremic syndrome. Yes. Now, is that is that a possibility if you've been told you have that? Uh, no. So, the, the classic <laughs> okay. pathologic features are the ones I mentioned, okay. um, uh, but not HUS. HUS is rather specific. Of course, there are many etiologies, as you know better than I, for HUS, mm -hmm. but that pathology is different than what you might see in a kidney affected by fibroid disease. So, you know, what, why I was asking is because some people may feel that they've been diagnosed. So other than FSGS, are there other names that patients may have been given for their diagnosis and hypertension? The pathologic diagnosis, if they've had a kidney biopsy, tends to be hypertensive nephrosclerosis and FSGS. Okay. But on the other hand, the key point you're raising is that most often somebody has kidney failure, has high blood pressure, which, by the way, Fabry disease also causes, and they're told that the cause of their kidney failure is high blood pressure. Okay. However, is if that is alone the problem or may they have something else that leads to high blood pressure and also kidney failure which has never been tested for, is what we're hoping to identify. So people can be given the diagnosis of hypertension. Uh, they can be given the diagnosis of end-stage kidney disease of unknown etiology. If they've had, for example, diabetes for quite some time, whether or not they have or had not had a biopsy, those individuals tend not to have Fabre, although some may. Uh, but diabetes, of course, has unique features to it. And so, of course, there's no reason, at least not up front, to screen somebody with longstanding diabetes who's been followed and has all the other features of diabetes, which would be the most common reason why somebody goes on dialysis. 
But if they've not had a kidney biopsy or if they have, and it's one of those diagnoses I mentioned, but more often people don't have a biopsy. And if they have not had a biopsy and they don't have otherwise a condition that somebody can point to like diabetes and they're young and potentially has a family history, it's really in that group of individuals we'd like to screen. Well, it's just fascinating, um, Dr. Tadani, because... Uh, I've lived with this illness since 1969, and it's amazing how much we learn every year, every decade, and how it improves our lives. And the biggest thing that's the takeaway from this is is that, you know, people need to be aware of it because they could be passing it along to their, their, their family members. Their family members could have it already, and there's treatment that could potentially help their family members so that they wouldn't suffer the effects of end-stage renal disease. So if patients want to find out about this, um, what, what website do they go to? So the name of the study, Lori, is called Kindred, uh, K-I-N-D-R-E-D. If they go to clinical trials and just look for Kindred, that's one way um, uh, to do uh, to find this. If they go to the web and look for Project Kindred, uh, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-K-I-N-D-R-E-D.com, they will get to our main website, which begins to describe uh, the study. So there are a variety of ways to get information on the Kindred study. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, uh, Dr. Tadani, I really appreciate um, you. You know, I, uh, you know, we're all here as a result of people who do research, and we all have to step forward as people who have an illness to help not only ourselves but help people. You know, that are going to come after us, so they don't have to suffer as much as we have based on medical technology and innovation improving. So I thank you so much for, um, you know, sharing your knowledge. And um, I look forward to to meeting you someday. I'm going to um, be over at Cedar sinai soon. So I'll make sure to uh, give you a call. And I look forward to hearing about the progress of your study. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate the interest. We're obviously looking forward to working with you and others. Um, just like you said, we're here uh, to do research, but also our patients, of course, are partners in that process. And I think together, we hope to, of course, make a difference in this disease. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.